Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Williams. Join me as we explore the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and discuss a wide range of military history topics from the American Civil War to the Korean War. Throughout World War II, Allied leaders met in a series of conferences to discuss and decide joint military and political goals. The Casablanca Conference, held in Casablanca, French Morocco, from January 14th to 24th, 1943, was the third of these meetings. And as with the other conferences, the personalities, the debates, and the eventual agreements are absolutely fascinating. To take us behind the scenes and to tell us more about the Casablanca Conference, we are joined by James B. Conroy, author of The Devils Will Get No Rest, FDR, Churchill, and the Plan That Won the War. Welcome, sir, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So tell us what inspired you to write about the Casablanca Conference. Well, um, this this is my fourth book of narrative history. Uh, and uh, when I was casting about for uh, a new subject after having done the third one, I happened to be watching a TV documentary about the Casablanca Conference. Uh, I had known about it. I had read, you know, scattered references to it, but uh, didn't know much about it. As the documentary played out, it was clear that Roosevelt, Churchill, Charles de Gaulle, George C. Marshall, George S. Patton, and a host of other British and American heavyweights uh, had gathered together for 10 days in Casablanca in an active war zone uh, surrounded by barbed wire. And I thought to myself, well, there's got to be a story there. And uh, happily, it turned out that there was. Most definitely. Introduce us to some of the principles. Who is there? Who isn't there? And how do they interact with each other? Well, to start with, you've got Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill, which uh, would be enough in itself, I think, to be worthy of attention. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, Stalin had been invited, uh, but wasn't there because of the very good excuse that he and his senior military command were fighting the battle of Stalingrad at the time, which was the crucial battle of you know the Russian war. And uh, so he was not present. But in addition to FDR and Churchill, uh, there were Charles de Gaulle, George C. Marshall, the chief of staff of the United States Army, later famous for the Marshall Plan, Dwight D. Eisenhower, George S. Patton, um, on the British side, Lord Louis Mountbatten, General Alan Brooke, uh, and just a host of, of other major players. It was really the combined high command of both the British and American leadership, political and military. There's a great quote in the book from British attendee and future Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, and he describes the relationship between the British and the Americans like this. We are like the Greeks in the later Roman Empire. They ran it because they were so much more cleverer than the Romans, but they never told the Romans this. Is this the general British view? And what is the American perspective and how do both sides try to kind of manage each other? Yeah, I thought Macmillan's quote was right on the nose. That's really a very good summary of where the Brits were coming from. You have to keep in mind that they had been a world power for 300 years, and it was in their DNA at this point, whereas the United States had dabbled in world affairs and, of course, had been a decisive factor in World War I. But as Americans tended to do in those days, they came and went. You know, they 
participated in World War I and then pulled the cover over their heads and went isolationist for, for 25 years. So uh, there really was a great imbalance of sophistication, experience, uh, both military and diplomatic uh, and cultural for that matter. Um, it's kind of the reverse of where we are today, where the United States is the dominant power uh, in the world, although no longer the the only dominant power in the world. Uh, and the British are probably a third rate uh, military power. So it's really a complete reversal. It's only 80 years ago, which is not that long in the scheme of things, but it's a dramatic change from where we are today. And the point of view of the British, I think, is well summed up by what Macmillan said. Uh, I often tell audiences that, uh, you know, the British collectively referred to the Americans as loyal, friendliness itself, trustworthy, hardworking, great organizers, uh, and uh, good friends, all of which might flatter a border collie. There was this kind of uh, imperial condescension involved, kind of a pat on the head to these to these kids, you know, from the other side of the world. And uh, the Americans, in turn, were pretty suspicious of, of the Brits, partly because of all that, which they could clearly hear and see and smell, and uh, partly because they knew that uh, they were not in the same league with the British in terms of all that experience and sophistication. So there was a kind of a tension in the air when this conference began. That seems pretty clear, too, when they're talking about actual military realities on the ground. It seems that the, the British, at least at this conference, seem to have a more realistic view of what's possible and what's not. So one of the things that comes out of the conference is this demand for the unconditional surrender of the Axis powers. And let's talk about that because that is very controversial at the time and even kind of today. Whose idea is that and how does it gain acceptance at the conference? Well, it was originally FDR's idea, and uh, the basis for it was several fold, but to make it brief, the um, the Americans had made a kind of a, a deal with the devil, if you will, by aligning themselves with the French puppet government of Germany, uh, rather, you know, kind of a subordinate of Germany after France was defeated in June of 1940. Uh, and the Americans had made a kind of a deal to work together with this uh, French fascist government, really. And um, they were concerned. There was, first of all, a public outcry in American and British press about that. And secondly, they were concerned that Stalin might be uneasy about the prospect of a separate peace with Hitler, you know, and that would have been uh, a terrible outcome for us because the role of the Russians in the war was crucial. So it was FDR's thought that we need to announce publicly that we're not going to negotiate with these people. We're going to demand their unconditional surrender and nothing less than that will do. Churchill agreed with that, but did not expect Roosevelt to announce it publicly, which he did at the end of the conference. Uh, and when he did, Churchill's head snapped around. I mean, he was shocked that FDR had, had done it, uh, but he had no choice than to fall into line with it and, and endorse it. Uh, so it was a bit of a controversial thing at the time. Time, there was talk then and now that it might have motivated the Germans and the Japanese to fight all the harder because they were fearful of what the consequence would be. But realistically, there's no way they were going to keep a Nazi government in Germany after winning the war or a fascist government in Italy or warlords in Japan. So I think it was the right move and a wise move. French generals de Gaulle and Giraud feature prominently in the book does the conference resolve the leadership of the Free French Forces? It did not. Uh, it gave the appearance of doing so, thanks to FDR's political skills. And I'll get to that in a second. But 
By way of brief background, when the Germans conquered France in June of 1940, de Gaulle, who was a young but prominent general in the French army, flew over to London and um, Churchill gave him a BBC microphone and financial support and uh, the backing of the British government. And he quickly became the voice of the French resistance and a very you know prominent, admired figure, not only in France, but around the world. But he had a stupendous ego. Um, I will tell you that of the dozen or so very senior generals and admirals who met at Casablanca, none of them were shrinking violet. You don't get to be in that position by anything less than a massive ego. But uh, de Gaulle's made the others look like look like nothing, just an egomaniac, really, and very difficult to control. Uh, Giraud, the French general you mentioned, who was sort of a rival of de Gaulle's, uh, was a product of the French Vichy government, you know, the collaborationist government. He himself had never collaborated, in fact, had escaped from German captivity in both wars and was fiercely anti-German. But de Gaulle saw him as a kind of, a, you know, a, a figure for this puppet government. And uh, that combined with de Gaulle's huge ego uh, just made it impossible for him to agree to combine the two in one entity, which is what FDR and Churchill were trying to, to achieve. Uh, that said, toward the at the end of the conference, at the uh, press conference that was held, FDR managed to finagle them into a handshake, which uh, was photographed and became front page news in uh, the United States and Britain and Canada, which achieved the illusion that they had indeed combined due to FDR's just political talent. But it was not, in fact, the case, and it soon fell apart. Interesting. Now, do you think that FDR preferred Giraud to de Gaulle? No, he definitely did. Uh, he he thought de Gaulle was a budding dictator, you know, that okay. he had this magnetic power, but also this stupendous ego. And he came from a very right wing military background. And FDR was convinced that he would uh, he would become a new dictator in France after the war, uh, unless he were, uh, you know, pushed down the totem pole a bit. Uh, whereas Giraud was no no prize. He was uh, not the brightest guy around and uh, had had also a very inflated sense of himself. But in FDR's view, was far superior to de Gaulle. Churchill, by the way, had a love-hate relationship with de Gaulle. You know, he supported him, he admired him, but his temperament and ego were boundless. Uh, at one point at Casablanca, somebody asked Churchill, an American, how are you doing with de Gaulle? And he said, oh, let's not speak of de Gaulle. We call him Joan of Arc, and we're looking for some <laughs> bishops to burn him. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Okay, now I have to ask this next question because we are the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. In the mm -hmm. book, Admiral King is clearly the top Pacific First lobbyist at the conference. But I kept waiting for MacArthur mm -hmm. to be like a peripheral figure in all the drama. Mm -hmm. And he certainly caused Roosevelt and Churchill some headaches with his I shall return commitment. And his very difficult Bunagona campaign in southwestern New Guinea succeeds in pushing the Japanese out of the area during the conference itself. Is this or his PR campaign to return to the Philippines a factor at all in what comes out of the conference? Well, uh, I actually went back to the uh, to the uh, minutes, uh, of which there were roughly 500 pages, uh, and the book couldn't possibly cover everything in those 500 pages. But yes, at one point in the conference, Admiral King reported on General MacArthur's success in New Guinea uh, as a an important development in the war that boosted everybody's confidence about what was happening in the Pacific. But uh, as far as I could tell, uh, that was really 
the only uh, mention of MacArthur. They had an awful lot on their plate, and um, the British in particular were, were were happy to leave the Pacific to the Americans. Right. So it really wasn't much of an issue, you know, uh, about what was happening there at the time. Okay. Now, every country, every service wants something, and everyone seems to have to compromise in some way. But let's try a what if. Had American manpower and industrial production been at 1944 levels during the conference, do you think the American contingent would have been more in the driver's seat? Do you think they would have been doing more dictating than compromising at the conference? Well, the answer to that is yes. And the proof of it is in what happened after the conference. You know, the Americans had had a 25,000 man army in the middle 1930s. Uh, I think it was the 17th largest army in the world, really almost insignificant. Uh, they always had a powerful Navy, but a very small army and had begun to ramp that up in the late 30s, you know, with the scent of war in the air. But even as of January 1943, the Americans had not fired a shot in Europe at that point um, and they had not dropped a bomb on Germany. It was really a British show and they were still ramping up both military militarily and in industrially, and had not yet become <clears throat> the dominant uh, player that they later became. But the British knew very well that they were going there, and indeed depended on them going there, because they were just barely hanging on, uh, you know, without the Americans. So everybody knew they were coming and that they would be the dominant force. But as of January 43, they were not. In the subsequent uh, meetings that came after Casablanca, as the Americans did ramp up and became the dominant player, the tables were turned and the Americans really called the shots and the British had to pretty much follow their tune, which was not what was happening at Casablanca. So Casablanca really is kind of a hinge on which the, the rest of the war turns, um, because it from that point forward, it becomes much more of an American-led uh, operation. This leads me into my next question then. How does this conference shape the next few years of the war? Can you take us theater by theater? One of the, I should say, by the way, that the book is is very self-consciously a character-driven book. I don't go into a lot of, you know, detail like, well, how many landing craft were produced in 1943 and, you know, what was the ratio of wounded to killed and all that kind of thing you can find in many places. But this is really driven by the interaction of the characters, which I find far more interesting that they are indeed interesting characters. But uh, all of that said, the two big issues, and there were many issues dealt with at Casablanca. But the two big ones were, uh, what's going to be the relative weight of resources that we put into the Pacific theater versus the European theater? And secondly, in the in the European theater, are we going to cross the channel in 1943 and attack the Germans head on uh, in a few months, as the Americans wanted to do? Or are we going to build up for that for a year and a half before we do it? And in the meantime, hit the Germans through the Mediterranean, uh, up through the Mediterranean, which uh, Churchill described as the soft underbelly of Europe. It turned out to not be as soft as people had thought it might be, but it was a strategy based on uh, making the Germans disperse their forces throughout a very wide area throughout the Mediterranean, and then being able to pick a specific target where the Allies outnumbered them or outweaponed them and uh, take them that way, which is what ultimately was decided. And really, the course of the war played out from that. Uh, the, the British essentially gave the Americans a free hand in the Pacific, almost entirely an American war up to that point. But in Europe, they agreed that they would defer a channel crossing until the spring of 44, 
and build up in the meantime the force required to do that. And uh, as I say, to go up through the Mediterranean in 43. Any final thoughts on the conference? Well, I think what what comes away from the, the whole thing as the most important points are the occasion it presented for the leaders of the Brits and the Americans to get together for 10 days in an active war zone surrounded by barbed wire that had been bombed by the Germans two weeks earlier. And rather than retreating to their hotels or their offices after they had met in Washington or London, they really had nowhere else to go. So they they had a chance to bond, to get to know each other, for friendships to form, and for really the beginnings of that special relationship between the United States and Britain that happily continues to this day. So uh, the great historian Rick Atkinson uh, described the Casablanca Conference as the hinge on which world history would turn for the rest of the century. And I think that's a fair, that's a fair assessment. Very interesting. I think one of the things that I I really liked reading in the book was the fact that the British, uh, many of their officers are very interested in bird watching and going on these walks. And, you know, by the end of this conference, it seems that they've got some of these Americans interested in going on these mm-hmm. walks as well. So I figured, well, that was probably, a, you know, a, an exact evidence of what you just talked about, you know, that relationship coming closer, spending all that free time together, um, not just official time together. So very, very interesting. Exactly. So, yeah. Thank you, sir, for joining us today. And the book is The Devils Will Get No Rest, FDR, Churchill, and the Plan That Won the War. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.